Hello, welcome to a bonus episode of Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single. It's just me today, no Katie. Huge relief as far as I'm concerned. Today's episode is an interview with Yasha Monk, an extremely important writer and thinker who will be introducing himself shortly. There are two versions of this episode. The the free version, which is about a half hour, includes our conversation about the deep threats facing liberalism on all sides at the moment, as well as an exciting new project Yasha has launched to help stem the tide. The patrons-only version then proceeds for another 25 minutes, in part to discuss an article Yasha recently wrote for The Atlantic about a spate of unjust social media-fueled firings, the true origins of the gender wage gap, the racial politics of police reform, and some other stuff as well. One minor pre-self-correction from that section. At one point, I say that Majdi Wadi, the owner of a Middle Eastern food purveyor in Minneapolis, got fired. He didn't get fired. I misspoke. Rather, his business incurred a great deal of damage as a result of a social media outrage. This will all make sense in context, I swear. The whole reason I was able to research, record, and edit a bonus episode of Blocked and Reported is because of our patrons. Please, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash blocked and reported and becoming a patron. For $5 a month, you'll get at least three bonus episodes per month, early access to the free episodes, and the ability to take part in a conversation with a wonderful group of people, 2,000 strong and growing, who enthusiastically discuss each and every episode of the podcast. As always, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, email us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com, find us on Twitter at at the bar pod, or check out our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blockedandreported. Thank you so much for listening, and please enjoy my interview with Yasha Monk. Yasha Monk, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me on, Jesse. Will you do my job for me and tell listeners who you are? Although I bet, I suspect many of them have heard of you, but uh, for those few who have not. I, I think assuming that anybody has not heard of me is actually a microaggression. I'm already offended. <laughs> um, sure, I'm Yasha Monk. I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins University. Um, I'm also a contributing editor at The Atlantic. I've been uh, working a lot on the rise of authoritarian populism. Um, for the last years, I have a book called The People Versus Democracy on that. Um, and like you all, I've been getting increasingly worried by some of the ways in which it now appears to be uh, the turn of the left to give up on basic principles of a free society. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, mostly I wanted to ask you about two aspects of that. One is an, an article you wrote that, um, let's get to that in a minute. There's a really good article in The Atlantic about some of these terrible firings we've covered on this podcast. But first, you're, you're launching sort of a countermeasure to some of the creeping illiberalism you're seeing going on, right? I am. So, um, look, I think, you know, I have a sort of little theory of how to think about American arts and letters over the last 40, 50 years. So if you'll indulge me, I, I, I want to sort of explain that. Um, sure. You know, I think for a long time, all of the mainstream institutions of American society, with some obvious and, and serious blind spots, but, but basically... Um, operated on the basis of a set of uh, philosophically liberal principles. So be they believed in free speech and free inquiry. Uh, they believed in the possibility of communicating uh, with each other across the lines of race and religion, um, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, they never were sort of devoted to the uh, uh, defense or the uh, propagation of these ideas, but they sort of, uh, it was the operating system. Um, uh, and that was true of places like uh, the New York Times or Harvard University, or Brookings. I'm not saying that they didn't have deep injustices, that there were real blind spots in the application of those principles, but that was at least their self-understanding. Right. Um, uh, at the same time, uh, you had gradually the rise 
of a set of uh, ideological intellectual counter-establishments. So a bunch of conservatives said, you know, we don't really feel like our views are adequately represented in the New York Times, so we're going to start building this devoted counter-establishment. And they build things like the National Review and the Heritage Foundation. Um, libertarians followed suit and said, you know what, we don't really fit into either of these camps, so we're going to build you know, Reason Magazine and AI. And then the far left uh, took over certain university departments and you know, founded things like, like Jacobin, or earlier they had things like The Nation. Um, now, what's happened over the last five or ten years is that a lot of these mainstream institutions have increasingly been appropriated by the anti-liberal left. Um, a lot of the liberal assumptions that were driving those institutions uh, are coming under challenge in important ways. And, you know, we'll talk about some of that uh, when we get to, you know, these firings um, that have been going on in the last few weeks. But, but that's only one example. Um, and so that puts people who believe in free speech and free inquiry, uh, people who uh, uh, believe in the promise of actually being able to communicate with each other across the lines of, of, of race and religion in the kind of way that as your great podcast with the poor sufferer of a Robin D'Angelo uh, diversity <laughs> training points out, uh, you know, people like D'Angelo do not believe it. Right. Um, uh, that puts us really in the defensive. Well, actually, hey, let's unpack that. What, what do you think it is that she doesn't fundamentally believe in? Because I think this is important. Well, I mean, you know, I think you've made this point and, and Katie made this point. You know, I just can't imagine that Robin D'Angelo actually has friendships with people who are of a different race um, because she seems to think that, you know, white people share such a deep essence of who they are um, and that the experience of people who are not white is so fundamentally different but not only do you always have to walk on eggshells around each other, you can't actually truly understand each other. You can't actually uh, truly have a, a, a common view and experience of the world. Now, look, I'm deeply aware of the fact that there are certain experiences of disadvantage and discrimination that I won't make, right? Um, uh, I'm not, I don't have to maneuver uh, sexual aggression um, and objectification in the way that a lot of uh, women do uh, right. in this world. I don't have to fear the police in the way that uh, a lot of black people in this country legitimately, uh, understandably, fear the police. Um, and so if I don't make a special effort to listen to them, to communicate with them, I'm going to miss important aspects of what's going on in this country. Um, so, so I need to make that effort. But, but what people like D'Angelo want to say is not that I come to understand them and that I come to care about the injustices they suffer for reasons of my own, because I have principles of what I think the society should look like and police violence or sexist discrimination or sexual violence violates those principles. Um, rather, I'm supposed to say, look, you're more oppressed than I am, so I'm never going to see the world through your eyes. Um, I'm just going to sort of uh, take back my own political judgment and defer to you on all these matters that matter to you. I'll just, you know, punt all of these decisions and, and whatever you say go. And it's not because we have a shared political solidarity. It's not because we have a shared vision of society. It's because, you know, you know better than I, so I'll just shut up and take myself back. That's neither 
a vision of civic friendship, uh, nor is it a vision of political solidarity that I think is, is, is either appealing on substantive ground, nor likely to actually uh, uh, work in the world. And, and not only that, but the point I've been trying to make is the, the only examples I can think of in most human life where we just defer entirely to another human being without, without turning our brains on at all is if it's like an infant or a child or your boss where you don't feel empowered to speak up. Those are the only other examples I can think of where I would ever say, okay, whatever you say goes, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, right, a, two, right, a two-year-old you. asks you to cut up, you know, the sandwich in a bizarre way. You're not going to start arguing. You'll do it with your friend. <laughs> yeah. You'll say, "Why?" Right? Yeah. I want to understand. That's what, that's what I find de- dehumanizing about this. It's like if I, if a, um, you know, if a if a black commentator interprets things in one way and I disagree, and I feel like I have the uh, sufficient knowledge of the situation or background. You know, there's situations I would defer, obviously, if I don't have that background. Like if someone's telling me something about African-American history, which is not an area of mine. But yeah, I, I mean, this deferential style I find I find so dehumanizing. And I think do you think that there's a small subset of mostly white liberals like D'Angelo readers who are OK with that, but that most people do not like being told to to sort of shut up? Because that's sort of my theory. You know, I come at this from a very strange Perspective, and I want to, you know, be very careful to to emphasize that I'm not comparing these two sets of experiences because they are different in important ways. Um, but you know, I grew up Jewish in Germany, and uh, that had lots of advantages over being black in the United States. One of which being that you know I could walk into a shop or a bakery or whatever, and people had no idea that I'm Jewish. Right? It's not something I could sort of choose to some extent. Uh, when to uh, confront this and when not to confront this. Um, and so I didn't suffer many of the disadvantages that African-Americans do suffer today, right? But, but the one sort of thing that always strikes a resonance with me is that people like Robin D'Angelo make me think of some of the really creepy philo-Semites that I met in Germany. People, people who love who, Jews and you broadcast it. Yeah, who are like, oh my God, you're Jewish, you know... I'm so sorry for the Holocaust and Hebrew is a beautiful language and, you know, Woody Allen is the best. Um, right. This is before Woody Allen was, you know, um, uh, 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 cast out. Um, but, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and it made me feel so alienated because I realized that I would never be able to have real friendships with these people. I would never be able to, to get them to see me as an equal because they would always... Uh, you know, you know, the fact that I'm Jewish would always define who I am for them more than anything else. And I hated it. And one of the yeah. reasons why I came to the United States is that I felt that I wouldn't always be defined by my Jewishness in that way, in a place where being Jewish is much more normalized. Um, so, yeah, so this is why I think a lot of this stuff that, that D'Angelo and so on are pushing really is inimical to a, to a liberal vision of a world, to a vision of a world in which we don't pretend that, that discrimination doesn't exist. We work together to create a world in which your race and your ethnicity and your religion uh, matter less or need to matter less than they do now, um, where they don't have to define you. For you can choose to let it define you if it's very important to you that you're Muslim or Jewish or, or, or Catholic or whatever it may be. Um, and to, 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 to pick up uh, the sort of strain of a narrative, um, you know, liberals at the moment are at this unique disadvantage because we used to sort of implicitly control these mainstream institutions, but we no longer do. 
In fact, if we say one wrong thing, we might be fired from all of them. And unlike conservatives or libertarians or even the far left, we don't have these counter-establishment institutions which articulate our point of view in a proud and self-conscious way, which might give refuge to some of these people um, if they are fired in the mainstream institutions. And as a, as a result, I think that there is, um, I, I, I hate this term, but there is this kind of silent majority of liberals in this country. Not a silent majority in the, like, like it was in the days of Richard Nixon, who are sort right. of reactionaries and want to turn back the clock, but of people who, who genuinely abhor Donald Trump, who generally abhor the kind of, uh, you know, authoritarian attack on the values of a free society that unfortunately now dominates the Republican Party, but that also generally abhor not anti-racism, but what people like D'Angelo and, and, and so on claim uh, anti-racism consists in, people who want a society in which we can think of each other uh, as individuals with due uh, attention to the disadvantages that some groups suffer in this country with due determination to overcome those advantages, but not in a way where we're always going to treat each other uh, with uh, these condescending kid gloves uh, that, that I experienced as a Jew in Germany and that I think uh, 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 the poor people who have uh, Robin DiAngelo in their lives uh, probably experience. And so the short answer to, to, to a long question is that's what I'm trying to found. I'm founding a community called Persuasion, um, which is going to be uh, a, an experiment. Um, we'll see exactly what shape it takes on. Um, from the beginning, we'll have some great people writing for us. We're going to have some uh, incredible life events. We have some of the best writers in the country uh, leading book clubs, some of them on their favorite uh, works. So George Packer is going to lead a book club on some works by George Orwell, for example, uh, we have uh, Thomas uh, Chatterton Williams uh, leading uh, a, a book club on uh, one of his favorite writers. Um, uh, uh, we have Jonathan Haidt leading a book club on John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. We have Gary Kasparov leading a book club for us. Um, uh, and, 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 and the hope is to create a place where we can articulate our vision where we can proudly stand for these liberal principles in this moment, but we shouldn't be ashamed of in the way that sort of it sometimes feels like in the public discourse. Um, and, 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 you know, create an esprit de corps, create a community of people uh, who, who share these beliefs. Um, if, am I allowed a shameless plug, Jesse? Yeah, that's part of the reason I want to have you on. Um, so, so the name of the venture is uh, Persuasion. Um, uh, the reason for persuasion is threefold. First, because we're united um, by a political principle, which is that we want to live in uh, a free society in which all individuals get to pursue a meaningful life irrespective of who they are. Um, the second is that we deeply believe in the social practice of persuasion. Um, and that's why we will loudly defend free speech and free inquiry. Um, and the third is that we want to do this in the spirit of persuasion. So I think some of the people who are annoyed um, by the craziness that's going on um, uh, sort of become too tempted to, to just troll or to just mock. And we want to actually persuade. We want to build the best, the most affirmative, the most celebratory case for the principles uh, that we believe in. So please, please, please come and sign up for our community um, go to uh, persuasion.community um, and, and you know, join some of these live events. Be sure that you, uh, you know, receive uh, these articles in, in the form of a newsletter. Um, 
and we're going to have a podcast. Um, and I think, you know, very much what you and Katie are up to and what we're up to, um, are, you know, um, simpatico with each other. That's persuasion.community is the website. That is exactly right. Cool. Let me run a theory by you and, and you tell me if this makes sense to you. I think that there's a subset of people who see things getting a little bit crazy and because they have lacked other options, the left could be losing some people to the right. I think that's absolutely part of what's going on, right? I mean, uh, uh, look, this is a really complicated and scary political moment. Um, and, you know, I'm horrified. You know, I think of myself as being on the left. I have been all of my life. Um, and I'm horrified by some of the things that are going on on, on parts of the left and that obviously, as we'll talk about in a minute, have, have now real influence on, on some mainstream institutions. I'm also horrified by Donald Trump. I mean, I'm more horrified <laughs> right. by Donald Trump. I'm horrified by Hia Bolsonaro. I'm horrified by, by Viktor Orban. Um, and so anybody who sort of, you know, I think it's absolutely right to shout from the rooftop about some of the, frankly, witch hunts that are going on. That is not what a free society looks like. And there's no shame in stating that very, very clearly. Now, if you only do that and start making excuses for the things that Donald Trump does and start making excuses for the things that Bolsonaro and Orban are doing, when you don't believe in the principles of a free society, um, right. you're just, you know, annoyed by the people in your social circle who are annoying, right? And so, uh, you know, what I really want this venture to be is a, a positive venture, a venture where we can actually formulate why we're annoyed by some of this stuff and why, you know, we care about racism every bit as much as Robin D'Angelo. We care about uh, sexism every bit as much um, as, 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 as people who might call themselves woke. Um, but we believe that we have better principles and better ideas and better policies um, to create a society that is more just, that is more fair, in which we all have a, a good and, and, and a decent place. And it's time not just to point our fingers and say, na 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 aren't these college students stupid? Uh, but to say, hey, what's going on on colleges and at the New York Times and at other institutions is a real social trend that could be very dangerous. But the response is not to say they're, very, you know, they're stupid and silly. The response is to say, here are the principles that explain why it's bad to uh, put up with these witch hunts. Here are the principles that explain why we do need free speech. Here are the principles that explain why certain forms of standpoint uh, epistemology, which basically say, if you happen to have a different skin color, I will never really be able to understand you, are not going to create a, a fair, vibrant, multi-ethnic society that I want and you want, and I think you know, 99% of your listeners want. What I found sort of frustrating is that um, the standpoint stuff is a good example. So, so at this point, you will see literal professional thinkers and writers saying things like, listen to black people, as though, as though there is one black opinion on any subject, as though this doesn't reflect millions of people who are, like any other group, constantly arguing about something. What I found is that when lefty thinkers like uh, Matt Brunig or Freddie DeBoer, they come to mind, and I'll include show notes uh, with these examples, they, they try to actually critique this and say, well, okay, what does it mean to listen to black people given how much black people disagree? How do we know which black people to listen to? I found you can never get a straight answer. People just sort of keep chanting these and other mantras and, and don't actually engage in, in the sort of critique you're trying to spark? Or how do you how do you actually make people sort of uh, – it's, it's like a little bit of debate me, bro, because these are important principles and, and people should have to debate them, right? 
Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think this this point is fundamental. That uh, you know, actually, a, a congresswoman said this recently. That you know, I no longer want any black. I forget the exact phrase. It's something like you know, I no I no longer want any. Uh, to, 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 to listen to any black people who are not a black voice. I no longer want to listen to any brown people who are not a brown voice. And so <laughs> right. this idea is that if you are, say, somebody like Thomas Chatterton Williams, who's a very thoughtful, left-wing, uh, African-American writer, um, you know, who wrote a very interesting... Uh, I mean, I think one of the most beautiful portrayals of somebody who's shaped by the most extreme forms of racism that I've read in the United States is his portrayal of... His father, who 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 is you know grew up in segregated Texas in the 1950s, um, and 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 the sort of way in which he fought his way towards an education, towards getting a PhD, towards a life of learning. It's it's a deeply moving portrait, you know. And somebody like that would say, well, Thomas is not being is not a black voice because he disagrees with me. I mean, that is deeply offensive. I mean, actually deeply offensive. Um, and, you know, I think it's always interesting to look at actual polls. Um, and when you look at uh, the opinion of black people in this country, they are very often vastly different from the sort of rich, highly educated post-grad uh, uh, white liberals like me um, uh, who say, hey, you know, I want black voices which happen to agree with the standard opinions that, you know, highly politically interested progressive uh, uh, white liberals who have Harvard postgraduate educations have, um, uh, and when you look at the actual polls, and you know most African Americans don't believe this. So one obvious point that people have talked about a lot is the fact that most black people in the primaries voted for Joe Biden rather than some of the people who claimed to speak for the black community. Uh, but you know when you look at polls um, uh, within the black community, for example, on policing, you end up getting a very very reasonable picture, as you do when you poll Americans as a whole, actually. So what you see with, uh, with, with you know, in this one poll of, of black voters that, that, that's quite recent from a week or so ago is that police violence is a huge priority for them, uh, that they, uh, as I believe, um, recognize the, the, the racially disparate impact of policing, uh, that they uh, worry about that a lot, uh, that they're angry about it, but also that they don't want to defund the police. What they want <laughs> right. is what all of the rest of us want, which is when somebody is committing a crime against you or when you're worried about something that's happening in the community, you want to be able to call somebody who's going to come and sort this out and you don't have to live in fear of them. So, of course, they're angry about the lack of police accountability and, 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 and the, racial, uh, uh, the racism and the racial disparities and how police treat people. Of course, they want to remedy that. But they don't think the solution is not to have a police. They want a decent police. Ooh. What I found amazing was there is a front page New York Times story with, I think, three bylines, nine contributing writers, an accompanying episode of their daily podcast, The Daily. I wrote about this in my newsletter. Um, they did not once reference black public opinion. They All they did was, quote, individual black people and activists who are in favor of defunding or abolishing the police, which is fine. You should get that part of the story. But in terms of basic journalistic norms or presenting an issue with proper context in the most important paper in the world – this, to me, was an example of sort of institutional collapse, where it's very important we present the defund abolition side because that's who, like, we and our friends are. That's where we are. We're on the right side. And just ignore majority black public opinion, which I found insane. Well, I, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is uh, perhaps 50% trollish, and, and the other is deeper. I mean, I've been amazed to learn in the last few years just how powerful, even at the time of corona, when there's no literal dinner parties, 
the thought of what will people at the next dinner party say about me is. I think you can yeah. predict, you know, there's all these conspiracy theories about, you know, newspapers have these very clear editorial lines that are passed on down from the editor-in-chief or, um, you know, you know, CNN ran all of this, you know, video of Donald Trump because the photo is good for the bottom line and it's all these sort of very rational economic decisions and, you know, um, publications will just publish whatever gets the most clicks. No, publications will publish whatever make the editor and the writer look good at the next dinner party. And yes. they will definitely abstain from publishing anything that might get pushed back at the next dinner party. Except now the dinner party is 24-7 on Twitter, and you can see how your, how your opinion is received at the dinner party in real time always. Yeah, and like while you're at dinner with your spouse, you get people shout at you, uh, you know, rudely if you do something <laughs> that, that, that differs from, from that consensus, which, which, right. which sort of, yeah, absolutely. Now, here's a problem, right? The problem is that we need the New York Times, uh, as an institution in American life. It's important to have a, a newspaper of record that does high-quality reporting, that represents a range of views, uh, that, that creates some semblance of commonality for citizens in this country where, where they can orient themselves towards it. Um, you know, the New York Times can survive if you know, the range of opinion that is evident in its opinion pages and, as somebody recently pointed out, in its news pages... Um, is, you know, between the 10th and the 50th percentile of a left-right distribution in the United States. Um, you know, that allows the New York Times to be an important institution that's mistrusted perhaps by conservatives, but, but that, you know, has some real pull in society. If the New York Times' range of opinion ends up being between, uh, you know, the 0th and the 10th percentile of a left-right distribution in the United States you're just not going to survive as an institution. I mean, it might no. turn into the nation or it might turn into some sort of smaller version of a guardian or something like that. But it's just not going to have the systemic importance that the New York Times now has. And A, that's an existential financial risk for the New York Times. Um, but more importantly, it's a risk to all of us and the rest of society because it's good to have something like the New York Times if we want to keep this country sane and if we want to make actual progress on some of these values uh, that 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 you know we care about, yeah, no, I definitely I share that diagnosis, and I think you see some people like it, it, when news outlets face financial difficulties, you'll see some people saying, "Oh, go woke, go broke," as though they embraced the wrong values and then had financial difficulties. My my take is there are these horrible structural factors that make it almost impossible to make money in the news business. And then in this moment of crisis, rather than broadening out, which will increase the probability they can save their, their own asses. They're just, they're just getting more and more insular and more and more concerned with what the other woke outlets uh, believe. Does that strike you as correct? Well, again, I actually don't think that the fundamental uh, principle at work is an economic one. I think it's just, uh, Sociological. People are, are worried about their own staff. People are very, very worried about scandal. They're very worried about, um, you know, the insinuation, uh, even if it's sometimes for really not very plausible reasons, that they're bigoted. Um, and so they just go along with it because it's the path of least resistance. And so the most extreme voices capture uh, the spirit of these institutions not because they're in a majority, even within those institutions, certainly not because anybody at the top has decided that this is in the economic self-interest of the institution, 
um, uh, bit simply because, uh, you know, people don't have a couch of their convictions. And that's part of why I think it's so important, persuasion.community, to, to, <laughs> to, to have a space where we can proactively articulate those, those values. Let, let, me, let, me, let me tell you about something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I think there's a sort of sim- syndrome of what I call not-to-fireism, where, you know, some of these demands get made and the sort of instinctive response of well-intentioned liberals who don't quite have a couch of a conviction is to say, well, I see where you're coming from, but aren't you going a little bit too far? And that is a really unhelpful response. Um, a, it's unhelpful because, frankly, it's a little bit tone deaf because I completely understand that, uh, you know, activists are going to say, well, I mean, the police is murdering people in this country and you're saying let's not go too far in caring about that. I mean, you know, that doesn't seem like a sensible response. Um, and B, because it, it, it mislocates the nature of the objection. My problem is not that Robin D'Angelo is too anti-racist. My <laughs> problem is that she has a batshit crazy conception of what it is to be anti-racist and how it is that we would actually build a more just society. And so I think yeah. what we desperately need is a place and a space where we get to articulate these things in a, in, in a proactive way, where we get to have more self-confidence, where we get to explain to people that there is a space between uh, the, sort of Robin D'Angelo on the one side and, uh, you know, a sort of uh, reactionary focus on the evil of uh, Robin D'Angelo and actually ceasing to care about the real fate of our society on the other side. That's such a good point because it, it, I mean, it makes me think of some of the discourse around like Antifa where the problem isn't that my, to the extent I have gripes with Antifa, it's not that they hate fascism more than I do. It's that I think they're embracing an unaccountable system where anyone can commit violence against someone else and then say they're fascist. And, and I say that as someone who has a friend who is one of the handful of journalists assaulted by Antifa. So I think you're right that we sort of see that framing when we make, it's not like my problem with Antifa is like, no, they're too against fascism. It's they've embraced a mindset for how to fight it that I think uh, is deeply liberal and could backfire and could hurt people. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's important that we fight for possession of these terms. Um, uh, I mean, quite clear with Antifa and even more strongly with anti-racist. I, I, I see people on, on Twitter and so on saying, oh, no, no, don't call yourself an anti-racist because that is sort of the crazy ideas of D'Angelo and so on. It's like, no. Yeah, I hate don't, that. I hate don't that. Don't give, I mean, like, it's the same, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. It's the same the other way around, right? Like some trolls in 4chan decide to appropriate the OK symbol for themselves um, uh, and then it becomes sort of a white supremacist symbol and suddenly we're like not supposed to make the okay symbol. It's like, no, screw that. Don't let a couple of, you know, alt-right assholes and trolls and 4chan, uh, you know, claim the symbol. Why? Right. Um, and, and exactly the same way. Don't let D'Angelo claim the word of anti-racist. I'm a proud anti-racist. I deplore racism. I'm proud anti-fascist. I mean, I have a family history um, that, that gives me many reasons to both be anti-racist and anti-fascist. I just don't think that telling whites that they have a race essence that they have to be conscious of and that will forever make them different from black people is a great way of being anti-racist. I think it actually puts you pretty close to being racist. Um, and I don't think that saying, hey, a, a, a decentralized, devolved group of little splinter groups should get to make autonomous decisions about who is a fascist and then be fully justified in violently attacking them 
is a good way of fighting fascism. Um, so yeah, I'm an anti-racist. I'm an anti-fascist. I that doesn't mean I like Antifa and doesn't mean I like uh, Robin DiAngelo. If I understand correctly, then you're you're against Antifa, which means you're pro-fascism. You've summarized it uh, accurately and beautifully. Yes, that's what we do here on Blockchain Reported. We 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 uh, listen to other views charitably. Um, well, okay. Let's hit one last pitch. the The site is called Persuasion Community. That's what it's called. Okay, I would uh, recommend everyone check that out and and sign up. Sign up. Give us sign a up. address. Make sure that we can reach you about the great book clubs and so on. It's me again. Uh, me, as in not the Jesse interviewing Yasha Monk, but me, the Jesse, recording this outro alone in his apartment. If you want to hear the rest of my interview with Yasha, including our conversation about his recent article, Stop Firing the Innocent, the origins of the gender wage gap, and more, just head on over to patreon.com slash blocked and reported. And definitely check out persuasion.community. Thank you so much. Have a great 4th of July, and you'll hear us again next week.